This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 11, The Atlanta Women's Club. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey guys, hope everyone had a great week, despite the rain, and I hope that everyone's getting ready for Thanksgiving, which I can't really believe is happening next week. I'm excited because this is my first year having my parents here in Georgia, so they retired Last year, the end of last year, and they moved here from New York, and seriously, my mom makes the best turkey, which I know that everyone says that about their mom, but I'm really telling the truth. <laughs> so much so that um, everyone is coming to my parents' house because this turkey is that well-known. It's interesting to me to see how my episode ideas evolve. Um, I haven't had a show about an Atlanta person since episode one, so this week I really wanted to plan on doing a woman, and I thought, okay, I'm going to do Rebecca Douglas Lowe. And then I realized that it's impossible to talk about her without talking about the Atlanta Women's Club, and then I thought, well, why not cover the historical mansion that the club is in, right? First world problems at its best. Most of this information was new for me, and not just the Atlanta history part, but the general history of women's clubs in America. I feel like I lost my feminist card a little bit because I really had no idea about this part of history and what these women were able to accomplish. And guys, there is so much information about these clubs, like dissertations, thesis papers, um, on both white women's clubs, black women's clubs. I actually wish that I had more time to work on this. But today, I'm going to do my very best to give you an overview. And if any of this piques an interest, though, I highly recommend that you read a little bit further on it. I'm going to post at least three links that I found. Um, I think they were dissertation papers, but hopefully that'll get some people started. To understand the whole story, you first have to understand where this women's club movement begins. The progressive era in the United States is defined as a period from 1890 to 1920. And it's marked by social and political activism and reform. So the United States is making the switch from being an agrarian society to an industrial society. You have immigrants flooding into northern cities like Boston, Chicago, New York. And there's a push to solve issues of corruption, child labor, immigration, basically all of the human ills. And this work falls mainly into the hands of women, so to speak, because even well before 1890, middle-class white women around the country were finding themselves with time and resources to devote to these causes. At first, these gatherings were literary, maybe not unlike your Wednesday night book club today. But eventually, women would start talking about the issues facing their society, education, juvenile justice, child labor, like I said before, environmental protection, prison reform, you name it. And at first, they avoided talking about slavery and the right to vote, but soon those topics stopped being taboo. It was these early groups that would start the idea of kindergarten and even the juvenile court system. Black women would also form their own groups. Now remember, this is before the Civil War, so these groups are being formed in northern states like Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And these African-American women were tackling the same issues, plus throw in some lynching reform and even early civil rights. It's important to keep in mind that this is before women have garnered the right to vote. So you have a suppressed group of people that in broader society have, quote, no say. But it turns out women had a lot to say about a lot of topics. And these clubs allowed a group of people with little political standing to exert some kind of influence. Now, the South was in a different situation from the rest of the country. 
we had this little thing called the Civil War, which really left us picking up the pieces while other cities were really plowing into the Industrial Age. Most of the state of Georgia was very much agricultural, and then the push to join the rest of the nation was met with a lot of resistance. There was a lot of, you know, the old way of life versus the new way of life, which didn't really help that this new industrial way of life was very much associated with Northerners or Yankees. So the South is struggling to create a new image, and it's one that was going to buck the stereotype of backwards and ignorant. Reformers from all over the nation, they noted that the South seemed to retain a very permanent underclass, and that was made up of both black and white workers. And this is actually what caused a lot of Atlanta's racial strife. So you had lower class whites that had been convinced their whole lives they were different or better than enslaved Africans. And now black men and white men alike found themselves in the same class competing for the same jobs. In Georgia, after the war ends, there's an uptick in women who join social clubs that were not affiliated with churches. So before, if you were a woman and you were into something, I guess, into an extracurricular activity, it was normally through church. By the 1860s and 1870s, you really see the emergence of the women's temperance movement. If you didn't know, temperance is basically the anti-alcohol. Now, what I bet you guys didn't know is that Georgia was really the first state to pass prohibition long before the 1920s, but that is a, another episode in the future that I want to work on. In 1890, a New York journalist named Jane Crowley founded the General Federation of Women's Clubs. And what it did was basically bring together a delegation of 61 different women's clubs from all over the country to get together and be a little bit more formalized. Now, Jane's story is really funny. Um, in 1868, she attempted to go to a dinner that was at an all-male press club honoring Charles Dickens. She was denied entry because of her gender, so she went and she formed a women's club called Cirrhosis. Not the greatest name, by the way. Um, it was on the 21st anniversary of the Cirrhosis Club that she decided to invite these other U.S. women's clubs to this convention of sorts. 61 or 63 different clubs were invited, but Atlanta was not yet represented as we did not have a club until five years later. The Atlanta Women's Club would form in 1895 when this General Federation of Women's Clubs again had another meeting, this time at the Cotton States Exposition in Piedmont Park. A few months later, Rebecca Douglas Lowe, who was at that exposition, was inspired to join a bunch of her lady friends in her home and thus forming the Atlanta Women's Club. She was elected the first leader of this local club, she invited 17 other Georgia clubs to form a Georgia Federation of Women's Clubs. So there's a lot of long names here. I'm not even going to try the acronyms because they confuse me and this is reading it. So I'm just going to try to say General Federation and Georgia Federation. Now she was elected president of the Georgia Federation in 1897, but then after that she would actually be president of the General Federation um, from, 19, or from 1898 to 1902. Rebecca Douglas was born in LaGrange, Georgia in 1844, and she moved to Atlanta in 1868 when she married William Lowe. Now, William Lowe was a Confederate war veteran, merchant, and the founder, along with James English, of Chattahoochee Brick. You know, just the largest user of convict labor in the Southeast. He basically owned a death camp. But again, another story for another day. During her tenure as president of the General Federation, she focused on educational reforms and labor laws. She really stressed that club life was not a social affair. 
It was hard work with real goals to better the lives of others. She worked to organize women's clubs all over Georgia while pushing women to obtain higher education degrees, which was definitely not the norm at that time. She was actually the first signer of the petition to allow women to attend state universities in Georgia. And sometimes I think it's hard for me, like it's 2018, it's hard to imagine a time when I as a woman couldn't attend a university. She also promoted free kindergarten, um, and even at that time, she knew that female teachers were being underpaid compared to their male counterparts, and she worked to change that as well. The very first meetings of the Atlanta Women's Club would meet in Lowe's home, which stood somewhere near the current Emory Midtown Hospital. An old publication lists the Lowe's address as 513 Peachtree Street. So if you Google map that right now, it's going to take you to a vacant lot, But there's also a newspaper wedding announcement for her daughter, which says the wedding took place in the bride's home, which was, quote, located two houses south of the new church, end quote. I stepped into my junior detective mode for a moment, and North Avenue Presbyterian, which is still on the corner of Peachtree and North Avenue, opened in 1900. The wedding of Rebecca's daughter took place near the turn of the century, they say. So I think it's safe to assume that their mansion was very near the Rufus Rose Mansion, which is one of the last standing on Petrie today, right across from the hospital. And that same wedding announcement states that the home was among the finest, so it was the first to have furnace heat and gas chandeliers. William died in 1900, and in 1904, Rebecca began to date New York Magazine editor and professor George Gunton. Now that sounds normal, maybe, But the story is not without drama, and that's because William was married and had already been divorced once. In his native England, he married Elizabeth Bocock, with whom he fathered seven children. They divorced in 1882, and in 1884, he married Amelia Gunton. Amelia was pretty much a New York socialite when he married her, so she was his in into that scene. When Amelia discovered that William was being unfaithful, with Atlanta socialite Rebecca Lowe, she left him. George and Rebecca married within that same year at the Piedmont Hotel in Atlanta. And Rebecca then moved to New York to live with him in the very fancy Evelyn Apartments, which I think was the Upper East Side. Now the drama doesn't actually end there. (laughs) Apparently, George and Amelia's divorce was not considered legal or official. Therefore, he was still married to two women for several years to come. Now, they would work that out, and eventually he was officially divorced, um, and he and Rebecca were married for, I think, maybe almost 20 years. This early Atlanta women's group would work on establishing a public kindergarten in Atlanta, better working conditions for the lower class, enactment of child labor laws, creation of night schools for child laborers. Once that club outgrew the space in Rebecca's home, they began meeting in the DeGive Opera House, which would later become the Lowe's Grand Theater. By 1910, the Atlanta Women's Club purchased their first home for about $10,000 called the Baker Street Church. So it was called a church. It was actually built by the Christian Science Church as one of their first buildings, but it was very much shaped or looked like a house. It was during the decade that they spent in that Baker Street Church that Rebecca Douglas Lowe died. So this was 1918. And the club would then purchase their prestigious Peachtree Mansion in 1920. The Wimbish House was built in 1902 for Atlanta attorney William Wimbish. It was designed by local architect W.T. Downing, 
and this house is actually one of his best remaining designs. The Wimbishes lived in the house until 1919, when they sold it to the Atlanta Women's Club for $40,000. Now, the Atlanta Women's Club has done a lot for the city, and I think that most, if not all of us, are grossly unaware of the contributions. I know I was pretty shocked when I read all this stuff for my research. Former President Jimmy Carter and his wife authored a book on the club, and he quoted, Many in Atlanta may not realize that our city and the state of Georgia could have faced a very different history had it not been for the successful advocacy and funding of several important projects undertaken by the Atlanta Women's Club, end quote. They were responsible for establishing Atlanta's kindergartens by financially supporting and lobbying them to have them integrated as part of the public school system. They pushed for mobile libraries on southern railway cars, train cars. So basically, these trains would roll into rural towns and have a traveling library on them for people that could never really get to something like that. They established the Tallulah Falls School in 1909, which would bring education to poor rural Appalachia for the first time. And this school is still around today. It's actually really prestigious. I think private, or if not private, just very hard to get into. And it's over 100 years old. The first art gallery was held in the Wimbish House, and I talked about that a little bit in my High Museum episode, but before we had an official museum, art shows in the city were just randomly spread out throughout homes and hotels. They're responsible for the Mayor's Memory Grove inside Piedmont Park, which is most of the dogwoods that you have in the park that's part of the Dogwood Festival were planted by them, and I'm going to do a whole episode on the park soon, so I'll go into that in more detail in the future. In the first decades of the 1900s, they campaigned against drugs, worked with prisoners in the stockade, which I talk about in episode 6. They passed legislation to require children who were 8 to 14 years old to attend school at least three months of the year. Now, I know the club sounds all girl power, but they actually avoided supporting suffragettes um, or the women's right to vote in Atlanta during this period. And the issue was pretty controversial, and I think that Generally, this was a conservative bunch of Southern women. The club was also strictly segregated, as the infamous Ruffin incident tells us. At a 1900 meeting of the General Federation, which happened to be in Milwaukee that year, an African-American journalist, her name was Josephine Ruffin, tried to attend as a representative of three Boston clubs. Two were white, one was black. And it was actually Rebecca Douglas Lowe, head of the Southern delegation, that told her she could not be seated to represent the Black Women's Club. Josephine refused to attend, and it became national news. Almost all the stories, though, were on Ruffin's side, which I found really interesting to read, and I think it shed um, the Atlanta Club in a little bit of a bad light. In the 1920s, the Atlanta Women's Club released a cookbook called, very creatively, the Atlanta Women's Club Cookbook. It was distributed all over the world, though, so this is a world-famous cookbook. Now, two of the biggest club contributions are some that you may be familiar with. First is the Sweet Auburn Curb Market. In the first decades of the 1900s, Georgia's agricultural economy was changing from cotton to fruits and vegetables. And it was an idea of the Women's Club to create local curb markets to sell the produce. The municipal market was established in 1918 on land that had been cleared away by the Great Fire of 1917. That's also coming up in a future episode. (laughs) And I've said that a lot today, I know. They set up a big tent, and it was a big hit. So the success prompted the women to work for funding for a permanent building. Finally, in 1924, they built a fireproof concrete building named the Municipal Market of Atlanta. You guys may know it better as the Sweet Auburn Curb Market, and if you have not been there, run there now. 
Um, that is my favorite market. And I know Atlanta is very obsessed with this idea now. We have Pond City Market and Krog Market and 10,000 other food halls popping up. But this is, I always joke, this is the OG. So this is almost 100 years later. You can still get cheap vegetables, but there's also amazing food to be eaten in the market. And my very favorite um, is Arepa Mia. It's a Venezuelan Arepa place. So a little off tangent, but go have lunch there. Now, the second thing you may know, the Atlanta Women's Club was very important in the planning of Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. From what I could gather from the research, they basically called a meeting in 1925 with Mayor Sims, and the club president urged the city to purchase the old Candler Field south of Atlanta. And in 1925, the city does that. They enter into a five-year lease. Fast forward 93 years later, and we have the world's busiest airport. I do hope one day to do a whole episode on Hartsfield-Jackson because it's actually a lot cooler than you think it is. The Wimbish house would survive a bad fire in the 1990s, and this was after it was broken into. So it's a little bit of a rough time there on Petrie Street. Thankfully, it was restored, and it's still standing today for everyone to enjoy. You can actually get married in it, uh, host a ton of other type of events. And of course, I have a photo on the website and Facebook and Instagram, but I encourage you to go see it in person because this is what Peachtree used to be. The Wimbish house was part of Mansion Row. So as you're standing there now, surrounded by office buildings and Colony Square and new construction, it's possible to appreciate how incredible that the Wimbish house is still there. I honestly can't believe it. And the way that Atlanta is, I don't think we can guarantee its existence forever. So go see it while you can. The house is always open at least once a year for tours during Phoenix Flies, which is kind of like history nerd Christmas. It's a three-week long free tour event of places all around the city. It happens in March, so keep your eye out for that and you can go inside. And from what I, and I have never been actually, but um, what I've read is that each of the women dress in a certain decade and then they take you from room to room and each room has a decade theme. If you want to pay your respects to Rebecca, she's buried at Oakland Cemetery with her first husband, which I found interesting. But she was featured on this year's Capturing the Spirits of Oakland tour. And I found this out after doing this research, so I'm very sad that I didn't get to, quote, meet her in person this year. But I hope that they do her in the future so I can. And that's all I got. The story of Rebecca Douglas Lowe, the Atlanta Women's Club, and their home, the Wimbish House. I want to thank everyone for listening to this Labor of Love podcast and all of the kind words I've been getting recently. The most exciting part for me has been meeting new history nerds like me because I knew you guys were out there, but I just didn't know where you were hiding. And I've been talking to people online all week, which is really fun. If you're enjoying the show, share it with someone, rate it on iTunes, and please leave a review. That that really helps me. Enjoy your weekend, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye!